The Waves of Tech is the down-to-earth tech podcast for you, your family, and your friends. We remove all the complicated, drawn-out explanations of technology and simply talk about how technology is influencing every element of our lives. From social media and the cloud to tweeting and mobile communication, we talk tech in a different way. So plug in your devices and listen as we get ready to ride the Waves of Tech. On episode 431 of the Waves of Tech, major layoffs announced, Mars Opportunity Rover update, and Windows 10 warning. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Welcome to the Waves of Tech. Steve, how's it going today, man? We are back with another week of technology news and notes. We are, and you might have noticed that that intro was a little different, and uh, perhaps uh, we might even have stumbled a little, Steve. <laughs> Just it's, a little. Uh, you know, you get after so many years, you get into a certain habit of patter and uh you know when it changes it's tough to recover from and what am i talking about let me give you a little background and uh you know the ways of tech has been around for a number of years and over time the podcast platform that we were on grew and we had multiple shows in numerous types of categories and i'm sure you've heard us talk about the modern life network and in um september 2016 I decided I was going to retire from a lot of that. Thus, we've been slowly peeling the banana back and moving shows that are still going to stay active into their own website and their own feed. And certainly that's uh, what we've just completed today, Dave, with the waves of tech. Certainly podcast-wise, knock on wood, everything went right that you're not going to miss any episodes or have any errors. But also the website is now thewavesoftech.com. And you can go over there and check it out. You know, if you need to read um, show notes or whatever from any of our episodes, they're all over there. I guess what I'm saying is we're on our own now. Yeah, we are in our brand new website, thewavesoftech.com. Steve, you crafted it beautifully here and everything from our entire podcast catalog. And we have a little bit description about what the show is about and ways to contact us. There's tabs, ask the host, but also you can find our social media links over there for Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter as well. And so that's going to be the new landing page the home for the waves of tech for the foreseeable future and steve it's cool because we do cover every angle of technology it's nice to have our our dedicated website where everybody can go see all the show notes and all the links that we provide week after week and yeah it's been a good transition thanks for all the work you've done and it looks really clean so we do encourage everybody to head over to thewavesoftech.com well steve let's jump right into it after that little administrative note i wanted to dive a little bit into the big news that hit the technology sector this week was the over 1,100 layoffs that were going to be affecting employees in the companies of BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, and Gannett. And as we know, Huffington Post and Gannett are journalism sites and, and do a lot of news reporting, both from the political to the health and fitness to the technology science sectors. But we all know what BuzzFeed is too. They do a lot of top 10 lists, a lot of 30 They do a number of podcasts. There's a lot of stuff they do digitally, and BuzzFeed has grown into one of those digital, I want to say giants, Steve, when it comes to sort of a source to go for a lot of things. I see BuzzFeed pop up a lot on my Twitter feeds, sometimes on Facebook. And the big news, of course, was the 1,100 layoffs that were going to be affecting the employees. And Steve, I know there's a lot of, there's been a lot of buzz and reaction around it. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Google, they keep taking eyes away from newspapers and you know digital print and traditional print 
And I found this really good thread from a, a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Latow, and he's actually a journalism professor out at the Lehigh University that's in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe. He's also worked with the LA Daily News and a couple other firms around town. And he went on this excellent thread on Twitter, and we'll have a link up in the show notes, but I wanted to share some of the highlights from that to kind of give some context about what we're talking about here with these 1,100 layoffs. He said, for those who aren't quite sure why these media layoffs keep happening or think, quote, it's the internet or, quote, people don't pay to subscribe, there's a lot more going on. He says, what is considered the golden age of new age of newspapers ended around the late uh, 1980s. Subscriptions began dropping in the early 1970s, year after year, but not enough to show very many cracks. And he goes on to say, newspapers spent most of the 20th century consolidating its chains. But in the later half of the century, they became part of conglomerates and were publicly traded, where a lot of the profit margins for companies like Gannett were commonly around like 30 to 40%. Of course, that is an incredible margin, profit margin to have. For comparison, Steve, our local supermarkets have single digit profit margins. And of course, most of those profits went to the shareholders who came to expect them over time. This is the newspapers now. Of course, because of that, newspapers became a license to print money. And so chains started gobbling up papers over the centuries in the 1980s, in the 90s. They took on a lot of debt because of those margins, and it really led to a downside in that model. And so, of course, the internet came along, Steve, in the early 1990s and late 1990s as well. And quarter to quarter, they started seeing that subscription bill shrink. And of course, during that golden era, the newspapers didn't invest in innovating their products very much. They invested in technology to make it easier. And of course, technology typically requires a lot of less hands. So they were caught a bit flat-footed. Jeremy goes on to say, But not immediately, he remembers a college student in the 1990s attending a journalism conference, hearing publishers boast that newspapers were here to stay. And of course, they inherently believed in their product. And so you see that saddling debt and already shrinking readerships year after year, they sort of got into this bubble where when blogging was invented in the 1990s, that was sort of a sea change. And all of a sudden, publishers weren't used to the competition. And of course, they ill-advised didn't invest in innovation, and so they became more of a crosstown newspaper rival uh, in some respects. And Steve, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but what he goes on to say is that less subscribers didn't mean just less subscription money. By the early 2000s, about 75 to 80% of the typical newspaper revenue came from display and classified ads. And of course, we know we can look at Craigslist who essentially popularized the online free display and classify ads, and then, of course, cutting more of that revenue away from the newspapers. And he really went on to demonstrate some really good illustrations showing both digital and other revenues inflating throughout the 2000s. And about the 2003-04 mark, the, the dip really occurred. And he goes into a little bit more detail, Steve, when he talks about the way consumers value curators and how the newspaper uh, didn't really realize that. And he talks about, you know, there, there is money out there, right? Google and Facebook have, have something print newspapers used to have, and that is a reliable captive audience. And that's what advertisers will pay for. That's where they know people are going to be. Therefore, that's where our, our advertising dollars are going to be, uh, going to be spent. 
So since part of part of the middle part of last decade, we see that newspaper and media companies in general have really accelerated their innovation or their investment in innovation. Some of it good, some of it bad. Some of the big players like we see in Washington Post, New York Times experimented with that, but also paywalls. And it works, but it's not the best solution. And Steve, I just wanted to run through some of that as just an idea of why some of these things are happening. The the captive audiences are sometimes moving from platform to platform, right? You're going to see a big surge in Instagram advertising here um, of late. You're going to see a lot more on Facebook because it's effective. That's where the captive audience and the captive's eyes are. I just want to give a little bit of background and history as to, you know, the newspaper industry went through a lot of ebbs and flows. We've seen the digital industry go through a lot of ebbs and flows now. And that's what you're seeing when you look at Huffington Post, Gannett, and when you look at BuzzFeed specifically, because that's really trendy reporting and that's trendy journalism. And when the captive audience is moving from one platform to another, just like it did in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, that's why you're seeing that not only, you know, your revenue isn't going to be solved by subscriptions alone. And of course, that can help with some of your paywalls in your subscription models. But it's not just about that. And so having those captive audiences, finding the revenue dollars is a little bit different now. So Steve, I'll kind of get off that little soapbox there and just kind of say, you know, I wasn't really surprised by the news. Of course, I'm, I, I hate to have it affected so many people. But a lot of these companies have become digital first rather than print. And a lot of companies in the print business did not consider that and lost the captive audience over the years. I think there's different spins on this. I think there's different takeaways. I think there's different inputs based on models. I am in the camp that I don't think newspapers have a lot of time left. I really don't. And I think the biggest reason, except, well, primarily uh, is cost. It is, it's very expensive to have uh, you know, a paper print form. Second to that is expediency. Because if if you totally rely on newspapers for your content, then you're waiting pretty much an entire day before you get the news, as we're digitally, we're getting it instantaneously. But then certainly comes the validation, the accuracy, and all this kind of stuff of the information that we're getting. I think for some of these companies that we're, we're here talking about layoffs, certainly they were a part of that growth timeline when it was really becoming very popular and the ramp up happened. And now I think you're starting to see a taper off because people are getting even their digital content now from many, many, many different resources. And I, I mean, you could do a whole show on validity of information in, in terms of in reference of where you get it. I guess anymore, it's all suspect in my opinion. But I think that's one of the challenges that those organizations have had to deal with of, of recent. You know, well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, BuzzFeed's a digital pot of caca. <laughs> I, I, I had to watch how I said that. Uh, you, <laughs> a you digital well. <laughs> cesspool. But ir- irregardless, uh, I mean, that's just a ways of tech opinion on my part. But Dave, I think it's still too early to to see, I guess I'll say, where that balance point is eventually going to stop at. Is it more electronic? Is it more paper? Is it less paper? Is it more electronic? Is it a cohabitation of both? You have to be in both spaces to be successful. My opinion is that I don't think it's a sustainable model and we're going to see more progression for more companies that are going to have to do layoffs. Yeah, I think one of the big things, Steve, is when you look at how 
a lot of people get their their news, their sources, their music, their videos, their on-demand stuff. It's all on-demand. It's all subscription-based, right? And I think a lot of people hit a barrier, threshold maybe is a better word, when they don't want to subscribe to anything else, right? You have your Apple Music. You have any sports online journalism that you subscribe to. You have your Hulu. You have so many subscription-based. It could be your health and fitness apps, whatever. A subscription model makes a lot of sense for a lot of publishers, for a lot of app developers, a lot of advertising-based models. It really works. But now you're throwing in the likes of having a subscription model for your local newspaper or for your regional newspaper. I'm not talking like the LA Times, the Sacramento Bee. I'm talking like the Bakersfield Californian here in town or the Tehachapi News or Fresno is maybe a bigger market, but your your local newspapers and your local reporting and journalism crews that are out there, you're, you're not going to have that many people, honestly, Steve, that are subscribing to that. And I think that's where the model falls apart. And I think that's where not only prints, but also local journalism has has needed to adapt and hasn't really adapted. And it's not necessarily to their fault because, yes, you have a captive audience, as Jeremy had mentioned on his Twitter thread, with a lot of local news. I still think local TV news is still the driver. And I think that's a really good way to get eyes in front of products that you're trying to sell or eyes on your product you know, in the newsroom. But I think you're coming up to a point and where where newspapers are going to get hit really hard because nobody wants to have 15, 16, up to 20 different subscriptions coming out of their bank account week after or month after month. In theory, you know, these are all great, but this it there's a big problem I think people are going to get subscription fatigue over time. I really think that's going to be a thing and I think it really happens in the cord cutting when do I need that? No, do I want this? Sure, but I'm not going I'm going to put this to a side. So I think that sort of subscription fatigue can can carry over into journalism and carry over into a lot of the advertising and, and layoffs is what's happening with BuzzFeed and Huffington Post here. I like your point about local news, uh, and it was not something I considered in my previous points. And I think that is also very important because I think that's how most people get community events and obituaries and you know, those things that are closer to them personally at home. Where I live, I do not subscribe to the newspaper. There's something about it to me that is not worth my, my monthly payment to them. I don't know personally if it's approach or if it's content or, you know, w- what the case might be. But I think you're right that uh, local does have more of a stay place within the newspaper industry. Although I will say that... Um, if you get local TV, uh, you know, that's that's probably a lot of people's primary source. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting place that we're in right now. And I, we will have the link uh, in our show notes for you to read the entire thread about the layoffs and sort of the state of media and the history of media, to be honest. And yeah, Steve, there, there's, there's always a place for some sort of media in 2019, right? Whether it's print, whether it's digital, in some form or fashion. There's still magazines that get dropped off at our work. I still see people in the break rooms reading through them. It's a changing game, but it's all about the captive audience and how do you get eyeballs there. And obviously, with 1,100 layoffs going on with BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, and Gannett, they're losing ground in some form or fashion. And unfortunately, that's more with the social media outlets and even some of the up-and-coming like social apps that are out there. So I don't, I don't have anything more to add to that, Steve. Um, we can always move on to our Mars story. 
But I wanted to put some context around exactly why 1,100 people got lost their jobs. And it's not just because, you know, one company's taking it from another. It's, there's a lot of variables at stake there. And there's a lot of, a lot of play when it comes to digital media, print media, and advertising dollars. So around 15 years ago, we sent a couple of items off to Mars to be able to check out the scenery, rove around, send data back. And of course, we know them as opportunity and curiosity. These devices, these rovers on Mars were actually only anticipated to live a few months and collect data and, you know, so be it. And up until recent, they have both been living and still sending back data after 15 years. As curiosity is is still roaming around Mars, it appears opportunity has died because of a fierce dust storm that happened on Mars. It was only, I think, about four hours ago they were trying to make the final attempt to bring opportunity back to life. It is not successful. So certainly it appears this force, this fierce uh, dust storm has taken out opportunity, which I think is very sad. We were getting incredible information uh, back from the, the rover. Some of the pictures are just breathtaking and stunning. We knew they wouldn't last forever. And certainly, I guess we're blessed that they did live for 15 years. Yeah, it has been pretty amazing, as you mentioned, something that was really only designed that launched, what, January 2004, really only designed to last a few months, travel a few hundred yards, but they just kept on going. According to what NASA and the U.S. government is putting out is the six-wheeled opportunity logged more than 28 miles on Mars before falling silent. Pretty impressive. I mean, sadly, as you mentioned, hasn't been heard from since that significant severe dust storm last June. And there was so much dust in the Mars atmosphere that actually sunlight could not reach Opportunity's solar panels to generate power. And that's really what ended the demise of Opportunity. But Steve, it's pretty impressive to think, as you mentioned, how much information and how much not only have we learned about the planet, but also the contributions that this little Opportunity rover has contributed to the likes of Earth science and to data collection and for for international space travel, it's quite impressive. And even if we never hear from the spacecraft again, it's obviously work and its functionality is, is unquestionable, right? This is something that I obviously didn't think was going to last this long. And, you know, to make, make that long of a trip and then to last 15 years on the Red Planet, I think it's quite amazing. So it's going to be only a few more attempts until they pretty much say, all right, you know, everything has gone silent. But a, a pretty cr- pretty incredible historical and significant contribution opportunity is given to us. Yeah, because uh, I like this because, you know, what's the norm when it comes to technology and exploration is that something always goes wrong, something doesn't work, and the lifespan is not what we thought. Here's the total opposite, and I, I think it's a, uh, a great story of a rover that um, will be going down in history. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the great quotes, um, there was a principal investigator from one of the uh, universities that worked on it and said, he goes, um, if this is how, if the storm knocked out the rover for good, quote, that's an honorable death. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, it's not in vain. Uh, pretty incredible to see what it's, what it's done for us. And 28 miles over a 14-year period, if you look at the pictures and you're familiar with the rover, 
that's a pretty long distance to travel for for a relatively small unit that has six different wheels and to maintain its structure and its ability to do that over 15 years despite all the elements of a planet we don't know much about that is a really impressive design and engineering feat for everybody in NASA i was curious and i haven't been able to find an answer and probably eventually they will is if they were are have any plans of sending the other rover over to see what the status might be you know if it's flipped upside down or whatever the case may be or are they not even going to want to risk that kind of thing but I think it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering if perhaps Curiosity can snap a photo of it at some point, you know, just as it's doing its scans and, and taking a look at what's on that red planet sending data back. Maybe maybe they'll catch a glimpse of him and or her. I'm not sure. Um, and, and uh, you know, see at least to figure out where it's at. Or, or maybe it's so far floating in, you know, space junk area that maybe someone in the International Space Station will see opportunity roving, by, roving, roving over um, when they're up there. A couple hundred years from now is uh, we send people to Mars to perhaps start living there. Uh, they might find this ancient relic and, um, you know what, um, put a cross by it because uh, she done well. You did. So, Dave, ever since the advent of Windows 10, one of the real driving forces from a Microsoft perspective is the, the update process uh, to ensure that operating systems have the latest what it needs, not only for operationalness, but also for uh, security and threat detection and, and those kinds of things. If you remember previous operating systems, you know, you kind of set the stuff and it kind of loaded. And if you didn't even want to get them, you could set it to, don't ever send me that crap. But with Windows 10, it's a lot different. I have to applaud Microsoft for wanting to certainly secure everything. It's in their best interest. It's in our best interest. Certainly when Windows 10 came out, to be honest with you, it was an absolute stinking nightmare in terms of the upgrade process or update process, I should say. You didn't have a, a lot of selection, and especially in a business or corporate environment where they took a lot of the ability of IT to determine the best approaches. They came up with updates that um, then let you kind of manipulate and manage but something i had never thought of because i don't i never thought it was a real issue of today's computing systems is that when a computer gets too low on disk space then certainly the update system can't download and process basically in any information or updates so coming up in a new release of windows 10 microsoft is actually when the operating system gets installed it's going to reserve nine gigabytes of hard drive space that is not removable so that it always has storage space to be able to process their updates. Now, you can look at this a million different ways. Who is Microsoft to, you know, take that much hard disk space away from me? If you're on a small 128 gigabit SSD hard drive, that's a large percentage, although we're getting a lot better with SSDs, but there's a price tag with that. I guess there's a lot of ways of looking at this. Um, is it good? Is it evil? Is it right? Is it wrong? I think there's probably too many people on different parts of the fence when it comes to this, but certainly from Microsoft's perspective, they're attempting to look out for the, for the masses and certainly for the benefit and, and health of their company too. 
eventually you're going to see this large partition, unremovable partition on your computers, and people are going to be wondering, what is this? Why do I have to have it? Why can't I get rid of it? Well, it's for your security. Yeah, this is interesting, Steve. I know a couple of weeks ago we talked about how Microsoft was ending or entering its final year of support for Windows 7 and the inability of a lot of their users to really push over to the Windows 10 upgrade wave. You know, there was a, in fact, I think we reported that there was over 600 million Windows PCs still actively being used. And of course, that's not all of them going to be replaced or retired within the next year. There were security concerns. And this kind of adds to that a little bit, Steve, where, you know, they're, Windows wants you, and now they're going to force you to essentially reserve seven gigs of your space so that, quote, this will enable most PCs to download and install an update without having to free up any of your disk space, even when you have minimal free disk space. And this all came from a a blog posting from one of their program managers. And Steve, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. This is a very tricky slope because, as you said, we want people to you know, move away from previous operating systems and be onto a Windows 10 platform where it can be managed, where it can be safely used. It's a protection both of Microsoft, but also of the users behind their products. But at the same time, your space is your space, right? And I don't, I don't take too kindly to a, to a technology company essentially controlling seven gigs of what I have or don't have on my computer. And I know what they're moving to to ensuring that your computer can receive all the latest updates. And Steve, I'm I'm actually quite surprised that something like this hasn't made the news or hasn't been implemented in the past. Maybe this kind of hints at, okay, Microsoft is understanding that this is a vital yet a really controversial feature that, that they want to implement. And so it'll be interesting as those that are using Windows 10, they're going to be soon realizing that a lot of their computer resource is being consumed, and there's not much you can do about it. And that's a really uncomfortable place for a lot of people to be. In the future, if you're browsing your computer and you see something called reserved storage, that's what it is. I'm not sure I agree. I kind of understand the, the certainly the argument, but um, these tech companies that reach out and touch our property, that's an argument to be had. Absolutely. And I think the link that we have in the show notes for you really shows that a lot of the Windows 10 upgrades have caused a lot of serious problems. You know, they've had some really big ones, you know, just in 2018, uh, in January, April, October, November, there's several reports of some serious upgrade issues that have that have happened. And so I think that's a lot of people's reservation that are out there, at least in the enterprise space and in, in the professional business setting that's, you know, you're reserving the space and it's just going to cause us problems in the future. You know, let the IT professionals take care of it. I'm with you, Steve. It's a it's a very tricky line. I'm I'm not completely for this, but I'm also not completely against it. And when we know sort of the need to push to Windows 10 and to have that reserve capacity for updates that automatically do, which you should have automatic updates on anyways, just as a little side note. <laughs> but they're definitely taking measures to ensure that what they want to be put out there and to that they want upgraded does so automatically and there's not much you can do about it, unfortunately. Well, Steve, I wanted to finish off this episode of the Waves of Tech with a with a little heartfelt story about a a lady by the name of Rosemary Bryant Mariner, and in fact, you, we can call her Captain Rosemary Bryant Mariner. She actually passed away January twenty fourth of this year. And Steve, the reason I wanted to talk about this and finish the show out is she was one of the first six women to earn their wings as a United States naval aviator 
This was back in 1974. Of course, before 1974, not one single woman had earned their wings as a U.S. Naval uh, pilot, and she and five others were actually graduated, put into an operational air squadron, and of course, Captain Mariner, if you don't know, uh, she became the actual first female military aviator to achieve command, a command post on an operational air squadron. And of course, she was born in San Diego, California, just south of where we're at, Steve. And she grew up working odd jobs. She used to wash aircraft to earn money for flying lessons and flight time. And she eventually graduated from Purdue University at the age of 19 with a degree in aviation technology. And Steve, to put a little bit more context, we know in the early 70s that military, naval, air, um, air squadrons, pilots, it's even still today, it is a very male-dominant profession. And for her and six others to go out in 1972 and 90, or 74 to earn their wings was quite a statement and a little bit of a game changer. There's a lot of people that followed Mariner, that took her lead, and she eventually earned her FAA flight engineer and pilot's rating before she joined the Navy. And while she was in the Navy, she also earned a master's degree in national security strategy from the National War Cattle, uh, College. But Steve, it's a really cool story to hear about her and the five other women that earned their wings that were among the first female military aviators to fly tactical jet aircraft, you know, and to be on the front line in warfare, any aerial attack and in utilizing these aircraft and for her to move up all the way to a command post. And during Operation Desert Storm, which happened, I believe, in what, 93, 94, perhaps, she actually commanded the Tactical Electronic Warfare Squadron 34. A really cool story. She definitely inspired a a lot of young women to get into the space and just really goes to show, Steve, that, you know, a lot of these these heroes often fall behind the scenes, but she was sort of a a bricklayer when it came to setting the stage and and, um, being that role model that a lot of people looked up to. I had not heard about her uh, prior to you posting this article, Dave. And I think it's fascinating to be able to talk to somebody or about somebody about this caliber and leading the way and fierce competitor and, and those kinds of things, serving their their country. Unfortunately, she passed away too young. She's only two years older than uh, than I. You know, I, I, was, uh, I went into the military about the same time as she did. Matter of fact, Dave, for everybody's notification, uh, next week will be my 46th anniversary when I left for boot camp. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it hurts. That's a long time. <laughs> That's a long time. You know, something about, um, you know, the 1970s, even though we still have a lot of male dominance in today's world, when I when I go back and think about the 70s, I mean, it was really heavy male dominance. And women had their own barracks versus the men. Now they're co-located. They had military guards around the female barracks. It was just a total different kind of um, world then. And for her to work through and become successful in the military as a female pilot, especially back in those days, is really, really commendable. And to achieve the rank of captain, which is a colonel, full-board colonel in the other um, branches of the service, very commendable. We've lost a great one. It's very sad. I would like to do more reading about her and her life and, and, and the things she did for for us as citizens and some of her accomplishments in the military. I salute her. 
Absolutely. And just to add a little bit more to her resume and to her accolades, I mean, she was president of the Women Military Aviators Organization from 91 to 93. And to put a little, you know, topping on the cake here, Steve, retired after 24 years of military service, a veteran of 17 carrier landings with over 3,500 military flight hours in 15 different naval aircraft. As you did, Steve, I salute you, Captain Mariner, for your service to the United States, to, to the Navy, and to everybody that you inspired and sort of paved the way in the future. Uh, just a great career. And you said, obviously, you know, died very young at the age of 65. But, you know, she contributed as a professor uh, of military studies for the National War College. She was a visiting fellow with the Center for the Study of War and Society and a lecturer in history at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And so an incredible career. And Steve, I'd want to highlight because not a lot of people knew who Captain Rosemary Mariner were, was. And I, I just want to give her some spotlight and some time to shine here on this podcast. Well, I didn't know who she was, and I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. And if you don't think there's a technology relationship here, there is. When we talk about aircraft, I mean, back in the 1970s, these things were sleds to fly. We didn't have fly-by-wire and GPS and all the great avionics that we have. It was skill. And um, I think that's certainly one of the distinctions of then and now when we talk about aircraft technology. Absolutely. Yeah. To to see what was done in 74 in comparison to, you know, 40, 40 50 years later, it's, it's been quite the progress with innovation, design, research and development, federal funding, innovation from the private industry. But also, let's not forget the ability of individuals like Captain Mariner to navigate these things and, and to, to teach others along their way on how to utilize these massive avionic machines it's it's been quite 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 impressive so pretty cool story steve definitely wanted to share share it with you and i i know it it touches everybody here within the tech space and especially in the, in the military space as well well thanks dave and i think that wraps up this episode what number is it 431 431 dude they go quick you know it's always great to uh, jump on the mic with you dave and we're starting our third or fourth life with waves of tech with the new website and and some of those things, and kind of peeling off the uh, where we were with the masses and um, more concentration on what we're doing. We've had discussions about where it might go besides just us flip-flopping of the mouth about technology. Uh, we'll, we'll see, but go check it out. And um, certainly, if you ever need information or show notes that Dave writes up are just spectacular, uh, if there's more information that you need or want to talk about it, get a hold of us. We'd love to chat about it. Yeah, you can find everything over at thewaysoftech.com from here on out. Well, Steve, thanks as always for joining. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And don't forget to keep on teching.